If you have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to open up to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, we've been away from Acts for the last three weeks or so with Christmas and New Year's and all kinds of good stuff going on, but we're eager this morning to get back into our verse-by-verse study through the book of Acts, and this morning we're going to be in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, and the title of the message this morning is, What is Your Mission? What is Your Mission? Acts chapter 8. We'll start in verse 1, and we'll read down through verse 8 together. Here's what we read by the author Luke. He says, And Saul approved of his execution. That's talking about the previous chapter, chapter 7, when Stephen was stoned to death. And so Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Father, we bow our heads and our hearts before you this morning. We continue to thank you for the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, which gives us purpose which gives us joy, which has changed us forever. And as we're looking now into your word to be reminded of what happened to Stephen and what's going on with Saul and the early church here and how you used Philip here in this passage, I pray that you would just encourage us today that we have a mission, that our mission is to love you and to serve you and to glorify you. Come what may, we want to be ambassadors for Christ, those who would glorify you with every ounce of our being. And so encourage us this morning as we look at this passage, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. January the 2nd, 1956, was that day that the 29-year-old Jim Elliott had waited for for most of his life. He jumped out of bed, dressed as quickly as he could, and he got onto the short flight over the thick Ecuadorian jungle. Almost three years of tropical ministry and many hours of planning and praying had led Jim to this day. Within hours, he and four other missionaries would be setting up camp in the territory of a dangerous and uncivilized Indian tribe known as the Akas, who are also known as the Wadani people. The Akas had killed all the outsiders that were ever caught in that area. Even though it was dangerous, Jim Elliott had no doubt that God wanted him to tell the Aka natives about Jesus. Months earlier, Nate Saint, a missionary supply pilot, came up with a way to lower a bucket filled with supplies to people on the ground while flying in a circle to where the bucket would stay still on the ground and they could offer gifts to the Aka Indians. And after he did this several times, the Aka Indians actually uh, put some gifts there in the bucket. Uh, They would shout out um, simple phrases in their language. They only knew a few phrases so that they could uh, correspond with them in a friendly way. And they finally felt like the time had come where they needed to meet the Aka Indians face to face. 
One day, while flying over the Aka territory, Nate Saint spotted a beach that looked long enough to land the plane on. And so he planned to, to land the plane there, and the men would get out, and they were going to build a treehouse to stay safe until friendly contact could be made. The missionaries were flown in one by one as planned. They were dropped off on the Aka beach. Nate Saint flew over the Aka village and called for the Akas to come to the beach. After four days... An Aka man and two women appeared. It was not easy for them to understand each other since the missionaries only knew a few Aka phrases, but they shared a meal with them, and Nate took the man up for a flight in the plane. The missionaries tried to show sincere friendship and asked them to bring others with them on their next visit. For the next two days, the missionaries waited for the Akas to return. And finally, on day six, two Aka women walked right out of the jungle. And Jim and Pete, one of the other missionaries, excitedly jumped into the river and waded over to them. And as they got closer, they realized that these women did not appear friendly. Jim and Pete almost immediately heard a terrifying cry behind them. And as they turned, they saw a group of Aka warriors with their spears raised, ready to throw. Jim Elliott reached for the gun that was in his pocket. He had to decide instantly if he should use it, but he knew that he couldn't. You see, each one of those missionaries had promised that they would not kill an Aka Indian who did not know Jesus in order to save himself from being killed. Within seconds, the Aka warriors threw their spears, killing the five missionaries, Ed McCulley, Roger Udarian, Nate Saint. Pete Fleming, and Jim Elliott. Late in the afternoon of Sunday, January the 8th, Elizabeth Elliott, who was Jim's wife, waited for the two-way radio to hear of news of what Nate Saint and his wife would discuss about how things had gone on that day. But there was no call. As the evening turned to night, the wives grew worried, and they knew that the news would not be good. The next morning, another missionary pilot flew over the beach and and was looking for the men, and all he saw was the badly damaged plane on the beach, and there was no sign of life. News quickly spread around the world about the five missionaries who were missing. A United States search team went into the area, landed on the beach, and found the missionaries' bodies, and they buried them. But don't think for one minute that the Aka operation ended there because it didn't. Did you know the story? In less than two years, Elizabeth Elliott and her daughter Valerie and Rachel Saint, who was Nate Saint's sister, were to move into that same Aka village. Many Akas became Christians. They are now known as a friendly tribe. Missionaries, including Nate Saint's son, Steve Saint, and his family ended up living amongst the Akas for many years. During his life, Jim Elliott longed for more people to become missionaries. But in his death, however, he probably inspired more people to go to other countries to share the love of Jesus than he ever could have in his life. What is your mission in life? Is it to make a lot of money? To have a lot of fun? To enjoy a lot of family vacations? Well, while there's nothing wrong with any of those desires, it seems a little trite, doesn't it? in light of the missionary story that we just heard about. 
we have to understand that God's called us all to represent him. And that doesn't mean that we all are going to be martyrs or that we're all going to get on a plane and go to Ecuador. But God's called you to something. He's called you to represent him exactly where you are with your own gifts and your own desires and your own abilities. And he will give you the courage to do what it is that he's called you to do. He will give you the ability to walk throughout this life in a way that would be sacrificial. And yet at the same time, it would be filled with joy. Our mission in life is is to be faithful to our Lord Jesus Christ. Our mission in life is to honor God and how we live. Our mission in life is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And if we are doing this faithfully as Christians, then we will be persecuted. There's just no way around it. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But from that persecution comes a beautiful aroma of the love of God. From that persecution comes a deeper faith, a more solid footing, and often a greater opportunity to tell the world about Jesus. The persecution of the church should lead to the preaching of the gospel. And while we may not be facing the Aka Indians in the jungles of Ecuador this morning, we are facing opposition to Christianity in America like we've never seen before. Christians who speak up and speak out about their faith in Jesus Christ and the authority of the Bible on all issues of, of life face immense persecution. And it may not start with stripes on your back or with spears in your chest, but persecution is coming in wave after wave. And I believe that these waves will not stop until Jesus comes back to rescue his church and to reward those who were faithful to his word. The good news is, is that there's no safer place to be than in the arms of Jesus. There's no better place to be than in walking in obedience to his word and to represent him faithfully here in this world. There's no higher calling than to be an ambassador for Christ, a preacher of the gospel, and a son or daughter of the king. We're all called to live out the same mission, whether you're a student or an employee or a senior saint. We're called to lift high the name of Jesus as he does his wondrous work of saving and sanctifying and satisfying us with his love. This morning, we're going to look at two simple headings as we lean into Acts chapter 8 that highlight exactly what we've been talking about. In verses 1 through 3, we'll see the persecution of the church. And then in verses 4 through 8, we will look at the preaching of the faithful. Let's start with number one, the persecution of the church. And your first blank there, if you are taking notes in your outline, says that Saul approved of Stephen's execution. The very beginning there, verse one, and Saul approved of his execution. Now, as you know, last time we were together in the passage here of Acts, Acts chapter seven, it's all about Stephen's sermon. And Stephen was a man that was full of the Holy Spirit and he was full of wisdom And he did not shy away from the opportunity to address the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin. And he preached to them, preached his heart out about Abraham and about Joseph and Moses and the temple and how all the things in the Old Testament pointed to Christ. And then he confronted them boldly about their sin. And he also exalted the Lord Jesus Christ as he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And then what happened? The very end of Acts 7, verse 58, and they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. 
And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And so what we are seeing here is that Saul fully approved of Stephen's execution. Saul supported the men who stoned Stephen to death. Saul was in hearty agreement with killing Stephen. In fact, later, Paul, as his name was changed after his conversion, made this clear confession in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, when he said, Formerly, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. This is Saul again, before he was born again. He was a blasphemer against God. He was a persecutor against the church. He was an insolent opponent of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then God changed him. He became a believer. In fact, he became an apostle. He became one of the greatest theologians and preachers of the New Testament. And what we're seeing here in verse 1 is that the persecution of Stephen that he faced here, it helped spread the gospel beyond Jerusalem. That's what we're learning this morning is that persecution actually was part of God's plan. Your second blank says, great persecution scattered the church. It scattered the church. The rest of verse one says, and then there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And so up to this point, there had been the persecution of John the Baptist. Up to this point, there had been the persecution of Jesus. Up to this point, there had been the persecution of the apostles in the first few chapters of Acts. Up to this point, there had been the persecution of Stephen that we read about in chapter seven. But now we see right here in chapter eight that that persecution has now moved past the leaders of the church and past the preachers of the gospel. And the persecution now is applying on everybody in the church, each person in the pew. Each member of the congregation of Jerusalem, it was involving the entire church. There is a price to pay for being a Christian. And oh, they may start with the leaders, but they're coming after you. We have to be ready for that as Christians. The word for persecution here in this verse is the word diagmas. It means a program or a process designed to harass and oppose someone. It can also mean to chase It can mean to pursue, specifically with the intent of inflicting harm. This verse says that there was great persecution. The word for great there is the word megas, which means large in size or numerous or intense. In other words, the persecution that the early church faced was no small deal. It was a big deal. It interrupted people's lives. It altered people's plans. It even upended their livelihoods. But do you know what else the persecution did? It helped spread the gospel. After the resurrection, the apostles were all on fire. Stephen had a burning passion to preach Christ, so much so that they tried to snuff out his zeal, but they could not. It's like trying to stomp on a fire. Sometimes when you stomp on it, its embers just get pushed out into larger concentric circles and you have more fire everywhere. And sometimes that's, that's, that's what it does. When you try to stomp out the fire of the gospel being preached by faithful testimonies, those who have a faithful testimony, it just continues to spread. And by the way, do you remember what the theme verse is for the book of Acts? Must I remind you, Acts 1.8, and you will receive... There you go. You're with me. And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem 
and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so this is how the gospel's spreading. Up to this point, chapters one through seven, we've just been reading about the gospel in Jerusalem. How sad would it be if they just stopped there and there was like a happy church in Jerusalem and lots of mature Christians who all stayed there in Jerusalem because they wanted to stay where it was nice and safe. But yet we see that it's now starting to happen. Because of the persecution, the church will now be spreading to all of Judea, to all of Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And if, again, the persecution had not happened, the gospel might have stayed right there in Jerusalem. But the outline of the book that came from, really, uh, Acts 1-8 is about how God starts, uh, the the gospel starts in Jerusalem, that's chapters 1 through 7. The gospel scatters to Judea and Samaria, that would be chapters 8 through 12. And then the gospel spreads to the ends of the earth, that would be Acts chapters 13 through 28. And so we see now the progression now of moving from the gospel in Jerusalem to the gospel spreading to Judea and in this text to Samaria. Now the word scattered that's used here in verse 1, it means to be dispersed. Persecution does to the church what wind does to the seed. It scatters the seed and it only produces a greater harvest. The believers in Jerusalem were God's seed, and the persecution was used to plant them into new soil so that they could bear fruit. Just like in the parable of the soils, Jesus said in Matthew 13, 3 through 7, that a sower went out, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them, and other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. And when the sun arose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they were withered away. And then other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them out." And so we see here that the seed, being the word of God, was scattered. And some seeds, again, fell on the hardened path, some on the rocky ground, some among the thorns. Our job is to be faithful to scatter the seed. Only God can bring the growth, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, I planted, Apollos watered, and God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And yet we know that we're called to be those who scattered the seed. And while a lot of times the seed falls on the hardened hearts, sometimes the seed falls on soft hearts. And at the end of that parable, Matthew 13, 23, as for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold and another 60 and another 30. I mean, just thinking about that parable when Jim Elliott and the other four missionaries went to scatter the seed to the Aka Indians, do you think that they thought that the seed landed on hard or on soft soil? Well, it certainly appeared to land on hard soil, didn't it? And yet, just within two years, the hard soil became soft. Our job is to be bold. Our job is to be persistent and faithfully spread the seed. And from a human perspective, the outreach of the church may have taken a lot longer time to reach people outside of Jerusalem if it wasn't for Stephen's persecution. Again, there's a, a, there's a pivot in the book of Acts now showing us how the gospel keeps spreading to other places. And yet at the same time, persecution is difficult. The intensifying persecution, though, is what often accomplishes God's ultimate plan. That's Romans 8.28, that God causes all things to work together for good. God caused and brought about Stephen's martyrdom. God caused and brought about Jim Elliot's martyrdom, 
because these people were working for the gospel and he did it for a greater purpose and for a greater reason. And following the church through Acts oftentimes can be like following a wounded deer through the forest. You ever been deer hunting and you shot a deer? I've actually not done that, but a lot of my friends have. And they tell me about like, ah, we hit this deer and he kept trudging along and we had to follow the trail of blood till we finally found the deer. Well, this is kind of what the book of Acts is about. There's a lot of persecution and you just follow this trail. And yet at the same time as you're following this trail of blood, you're also following the sweet aroma of the Lord Jesus Christ as his truth is spreading throughout the area. That's why we read in 2 Corinthians 2.14, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. And so that's what's going on here, and this is what's going on in our world today. I mean, persecution, we've got to understand, it's hard, but it's for the greater good. The fragrance of Christ is an aroma like no other. And persecution is indeed the vehicle that God has chosen to spread the gospel around the globe. And while many Christians were scattered, the apostles stayed put for now, if you see there in the very end of verse 1, it says they're scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So again, if you just read that once, you might think like, well, why are they staying there? You know, why aren't they going? Well, some chose to go. Some chose to stay. Um, the, the, the apostles that just thought felt a burden for the church there in Jerusalem. They wanted to stay actually where the persecution was still at its most difficult point, they weren't afraid to leave. I'm not saying those who left were afraid, but this is just the natural expansion of what happens. And so most likely though, the apostles stayed there, no doubt, to shepherd the flock of God that he had established in this most important of cities. And there was still work to be done there in Jerusalem. Let's move on to verse two. And your next blank says there was still some moral compass. There was still some moral compass. Verse two, we're reading, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. I think this verse is just showing us that not all of Jerusalem had lost their conscience. There were still some decent and devout men who honored Stephen by burying him and making great lamentation over him. It doesn't seem that these men were likely Christians since they're referred to as devout men. They're not referred to as brothers, fellow believers. That phrase devout men is used in other places to refer to, to Jewish people who were walking with some type of integrity and a pious life. And so we also know from the Mishnah that loud cries of lamentation were not to be expressed over the death of someone who was condemned for a crime or for blasphemy. This then appears to be a public protest of Stephen's execution. Many devout Jews did not believe that it was right or abiding by the proper protocol to have a mob so quickly stone Stephen to death. And even though as a whole, the nation of Israel had turned against Christ and his followers, there were still some, how many, we don't know, but there were some who knew that the way that things were being handled was just wrong. And these are these people in Jerusalem, these devout, decent people who were fair in their assessment and maybe their minds weren't fully made up yet as what to believe about Christianity. And so the apostles remained in part to continue to evangelize these people and to lead them to the mercy of God through Christ. And while I believe that much of our nation today has lost its moral compass, there are still some people who live among us who do not yet know Christ 
and yet they are decent people. Christ died for the wretched sinners just as much as he did for devout men. Commitment to principle and devotion to decency will not save anybody from their sin. But let's just be aware that there may be some good and engaging conversations that can still be had between unbelievers and believers about right and wrong and about what's happening in our world today. And yet with that agreement that we have with many decent people, we have to remember that our goal is not to just point them to a higher power or some generic intelligent designer, but to point them to the God of the Bible. And though as we continue as our witness for Christ, we, we must be unyielding in our devotion to Jesus as we continue to face an uphill battle. And then verse 3 says that Saul was ravaging the church. Saul was ravaging the church, but Saul ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Well, Saul was relentless. Not only did he approve of the stoning of Stephen, he was active in the persecution of Christians everywhere. Saul was the ringleader. Saul was a fighter. Saul was fierce, and Saul often showed no mercy. According to Acts 26, verse 10, he was armed with the authority from the chief priests. So he was acting in full power here given to him, and Saul wielded that uh, power to ravage the church. The word ravage is a hapax legomenon. That's a big seminary word. That's a 50-cent word, as they say. It just means it only happens one time. In the entire New Testament, that particular word ravage, it means uh, to, to tear apart and to destroy. And, and, and that particular word is also used in the Old Testament Greek translation, the Septuagint of Psalm 80, verse 13, which says, the boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Now that psalm, Psalm 80 verse 13, is about how God allowed the Assyrians to ravage Israel because of their disobedience to God's word. And God removed his hedge of protection over his people because they had broken the Mosaic covenant. Well, here in Acts, that word is being used of what's happening to the church. Now Saul is ravaging the church. Now you have to understand it wasn't because of the church's disobedience. It was simply because God had ordained this trial just as he ordains every trial for our good and for his glory. And so Saul was allowed to be this boar that was ravaging God's people for a time. That, by the way, that illustration is also used of Martin Luther by the Pope when he was ravaging through, attacking the fundamental ideology of legalism in the Roman Catholic Church that a boar had been set loose. And so we understand this is what Saul's doing. And he's ravaging, he's causing harm, he's injuring, he's damaging, spoiling, ruining, and trying to destroy the church. In Acts 22, verse 4, Paul said, after he was converted, I persecuted this way to the death binding and delivering to prison both men and women. In Acts 22, verse 19, Paul said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. Acts 26, verse 11, Paul said, I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So Saul, again, before his conversion, wreaked havoc on all those in Jerusalem and even chased them abroad from house to house and from synagogue to synagogue. That reminds us a lot of what? 
the Nazis in World War II, right? Going from house to house and dragging Jews out and sending them to the concentration camps. I mean, what, a, what horrible days this must have been to be there in Jerusalem after the persecution and the death of Stephen. And yet we know that many blessings come from persecution, you see there in the middle of your notes, let's just look at five of them, five blessings that come from persecution. Number one, you are connected to a great cloud of witnesses. Through persecution, you are connected to a great cloud of witnesses. The, the Bible's full of stories of people who were persecuted for their faith, and for centuries, Christians have suffered greatly all over the world. Persecution is not something new, and many believers today take comfort in the stories of those who have gone before them. In Hebrews chapter 11, the writer shares stories of the great heroes of the faith, and towards the end of the chapter, he describes the experiences of the persecuted, those who are unnamed to us and yet well-known to God. For example, Hebrews eleven thirty-five through 38 says, some were tortured. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They, were, they, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth." And then we read in the beginning of the next chapter, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, those who suffer persecution today are not the first and they won't be the last. But we can take comfort knowing that we are not alone in our sufferings. And that leads us to our second blessing that comes from persecution number two. You experience Christ in a new way. When the mother of James and John came to Jesus, she asked him to proclaim that her sons would sit at the right and left hand of Jesus in his kingdom. She wanted her children to be heroes of the faith, to be in a close relationship with the Messiah. But do you remember what Jesus said to her, what his answer to the mother was? And do you not know what you are asking, he said? Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink. So she's asking for this privilege. He's saying, hey, in order to get there, you got to drink this cup. The cup was referring to the cup of suffering, the cup of the cross. And as Christians, we are asked to drink of this same cup as well. We must be crucified with Christ, as Galatians 2.20 says. Later in John 15, 18, Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And so when Christians are persecuted, they can rest in the knowledge that Jesus understands their pain. He knows what it was like to be hated and to be mocked. He knows what it was like to be put to death. He is in the midst of our suffering and he will be your comfort. So suffering brings the experience of Christ's presence in a special and in a unique way. Haven't you experienced that so far in your own life when you've just faced a little bit of persecution here or there? God just meets you right where you are and he gives you an extra dose of his peace and his presence. Another blessing of persecution, number three, would be you develop spiritual strength. Paul was a man who was incredibly uh, familiar with persecution. After his conversion, he was chased out of cities, thrown into jail, and threatened to death. 
but he didn't resent that treatment. Rather, he chose to see it as something that was developing his spiritual strength. In Romans 5, 3 through 5, he said, but not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You know what persecution is? It's like a refining fire. It forces us to rely on the Lord for everything. It makes you ask yourself, am I really willing to die for this? You must make the hard choice to believe in the Lord and to love others, even when they are hurting you. And thankfully, God has not left you to your own ability. When we're weak, that's when he makes us strong. 2 Corinthians 12, 10, for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It is in our weaknesses that God is able to demonstrate his power. Therefore, when we suffer persecution, we are able to lean on the Lord and to trust that he will glorify himself and get us through whatever comes our way. And if it be through life, it be through life, and it be through death, it be through death. A fourth blessing of persecution is this. Number four, you receive heavenly blessing. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was quick to mention the blessing that would come to all who experience suffering and persecution for his sake. Matthew 5, 10 through 11 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Jesus promises that those who experience persecution here on earth will receive a blessing in heaven. It is important to remember that in the middle of our pain on earth, that this is not our final destination. One day, we will join our Savior in heaven where there will be no more pain and no more weeping. And then number five, the church continues to grow. As persecution grows, so does the church We have heard so many stories of non-believers who, after witnessing persecution, have actually come to faith in Christ. There are few things that people are willing to die for, but the world is craving something that is true and something to believe in. And when they see people dying for their faith, it causes them to ask why. In his letter to the church of Philippi, Paul writes in Philippians 1.12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has actually happened to me is really serving to advance the gospel. And so he goes on to share that the entire imperial guard knows that he is in prison for his faith, and that is making an incredible difference. Rather than, rather than causing harm to the church, persecution was causing others uh, to become bolder in their faith. The church was growing, just like it was right here throughout the book of Acts. This persecution causes the church to grow. And Paul remembered what happened to Stephen very well. After all, he was present there on that day when the first martyr was stoned to death for preaching Christ. And so the believers on that day, they were scattered, but they did not stop preaching the gospel. And what was supposed to destroy the church only made it spread farther. And the same is still true today. Persecution is a scary thought. However, we serve a God who brings beauty from ashes and strength from weakness. 
And when we hear from Christians around the world today who are facing that kind of intense persecution, what is it that they ask us to pray for? Never have I heard a missionary in that context say, please pray that the persecution would stop. They all ask, please pray that we would be faithful. Pray for those who are persecuting us, that they would be born again. Pray that God would help us to continue strong and not to fear and not to fret. And I just keep thinking, how could they ask for that? I'd be asking like, can you just have them stop whipping us and throwing us into jail? That'd be my first obvious request. And yet rarely do you hear that kind of request. They just want people to be renewed by the grace of God. Well, now that we've seen the persecution of the church, let's look at our second heading this morning, the preaching of the faithful. Verses four through eight, your next blank says, preaching and proclaiming Christ and scripture. Verse four, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. So they're preaching and proclaiming Christ and scripture. As we have seen already, the Christians of the early church were scattered due to persecution. The verb scattered is in the passive voice, inferring that it is something that was forced upon them. But the verb went out, here in verse 4, is in the active voice, which is more of a statement about their voluntary will to go about from that place. So I think we could say the circumstances, in a sense, lended itself to them being scattered, but we also understand that you could choose to stay in it or choose to go, and it wasn't a right or wrong. The apostles chose to stay, to continue to do their work there in Jerusalem, and others went abroad, but they went abroad not to find safety. That's not what it says. They went abroad so they could proclaim the same message that they were being persecuted for in Jerusalem. What I'm saying is, is that persecution was the original catalyst, but the early Christians also embraced these circumstances with an active response of going about preaching the word. Don't you love that? Again, we get persecuted, we tend to hover down, right? We tend to hunker down, protect, withdraw, because it's painful. But the Christians here are like, hey, let's go. We're getting persecuted. We got to keep spreading the fire. We got to spread what we've got to other places because life is short, and so here in verse 4, they went about preaching. You may know that's the word euangelizo, which is the verb form of evangelize, to bring the good news. It means to proclaim the message of salvation. That's the word for preaching here. They're proclaiming the message of salvation. And all believers are called to do the same thing. We're all called to be evangelizing. We are all called to be sharing the gospel. Every saved person is to be a witness. Every child of God is to be living life on mission, to tell others about Jesus. And that's true of you if you're, if you're in Christ this morning and you're eight years old. That's true of you if you're a teenager. In fact, I think teenagers are some of the most effective evangelists in our day simply because they get to live amongst other teenagers who haven't made up their mind yet, and they're trying to figure out what life's all about, and you have that window of time, statisticians tell us, between, you know, in those teenage years where you're going to make some lifelong decisions about who you're going to be the rest of your life. I mean, sometimes I wish I was a teenager again, just so I could share with some of my teenage friends that I think about in high school that I was too scared to be a bold witness for Christ about. So let's uh, encourage our teenagers to be rooted and grounded in the word. And, and we're all called to be evangelists, no matter how old you are. I mean, I could take that same regret and spread it like a wildfire down my street. 
right? And, and Castaic could just be like, hey, I didn't get to tell Johnny about Jesus on the football team, but I'm here to tell you about Jesus today, right? So I got to preach to myself about that a little bit, but uh, we, have, we just have to understand we're all called to do this work. In fact, turn with me to 2 Timothy 4, 5. 2 Timothy 4, 5. I'm talking about, again, how we're all called to be this kind of evangelist. We're all called to be spreading the gospel. And Paul writes this to Timothy, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Now, again, I know that's from an apostle to a young preacher, Timothy, but I just got to think that still applies to every believer. We're going to endure suffering, but God's called us all to do the work of an evangelist. We're all to fulfill the ministry God's called us to do, and Timothy was to do that work especially And you and I are to follow in those footsteps as we seek to be a witness for Christ. You may not serve in the office of elder or deacon, but you have a responsibility to share Christ with others. You may have never been to seminary, but you have a responsibility to share Christ with others. You may have never taken a Bible class at the master's university, but you have a responsibility to share Christ with your coworkers. Now turn with me to Ephesians chapter four, Ephesians chapter four, verse 11, just where we see this word evangelizing or evangelist a couple of other places. Ephesians four eleven. I think you know that passage. And he gave to the apostles, uh, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. So he's talking about equipping the church, some of the gifts he's given to the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Well, I believe that here in this passage that the apostles are no more. That it's a reference to the original 12 apostles. So we know that that gift or that office no longer exists. And then he says he gave the apostles and he gave prophets. I also believe as a cessationist, that the gift of prophecy in that sense of prophesying like it was with brand new revelation in the New Testament has also ceased. And yet the first gift that I believe continues is that idea of an evangelist. The idea of, while maybe there's no more apostles in the church today, and there's no longer prophets in the New Testament sense in the church today, there are evangelists, and there are shepherd teachers. In fact, when I teach on this, I like to say that what apostles and prophets were for the early church are what missionaries and pastors are today. So what the apostles and the prophets were doing in the early church, missionaries, evangelists, and pastor teachers are today. And what I'm saying is that that calling to be a missionary, we've got to understand, does not have a geographical notation tied to it, which means what? We're all called to be missionaries. There's nothing about going to Ecuador that makes you a missionary, though oftentimes we give those respective titles to those who go to the foreign field, and and we should honor that. But I'm just saying we're all called to be evangelists. Each and every one of us, you could be a missionary right here. And so notice here that, that we understand that God's called us to preach the gospel. He's called us to evangelize. This is what God's called you to. Again, precisely, according to verse 4, they went and they were preaching the word. Please note, they were not preaching politics. They were not preaching capitalism. They were not preaching economics. They were not preaching civil liberties. They were not preaching constitutional rights. What you are to preach is the scripture. And what you are to preach is the word of God. Only the word of God. 
can change lives. Only the word of God can redeem souls. Only the word of God can bring wisdom and bring power and bring true human flourishing. The government can't help you. Vaccines can't save you. And the world doesn't like you. So don't try to unite with them. Ultimately, it's about the gospel. Now, a lot of us happen to belong to a certain political party, and I'm fine with that. I'm just reminding us about our main calling is to belong to God's church and to do God's work. And God's work is all about preaching the gospel. May God help us preach Christ anyway, even when the world gives us a deaf ear. May we be faithful to preach Christ. The real problem going on today is not Omicron. The real problem is not our president or our governor. The real problem is sin. And the real problem is depravity. And the real problem is spiritual dryness in the church and spiritual distractions in your life. And the real problem is spiritual death that people are dying without the gospel. But you and I have the antidote. We have the counteragent. We have the antitoxin. And it wasn't made by Pfizer. And it wasn't made by Moderna. And it wasn't made by Johnson & Johnson. God bless their souls. You know what I'm saying? The real answer is the free gift of salvation, and it has no negative side effects. It has no adverse reactions, and it brings absolutely no harm to your soul. We are to be passing out this truth from God's word faster than Universal Studios can pass out free COVID tests. You can take this dose of God's spiritual medicine here or at home. And when you take God's remedy, you don't need any other shots. You don't need any other boosters. No one is making a profit off of salvation. No true preacher of the gospel is giving any misinformation. There is no agency except the church, the true church, filled with brothers and sisters in Christ who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and they offer to you this day the gospel, eternal life. That's the problem in the world today. That's what we need to be preaching. That's what the early church was doing. They were scattered about and they were preaching the word. That's what they're doing. That's what we need to do. And then we start to see the results of the word of God as it lights a fire throughout Acts. Acts 12, 24, the word of God increased and multiplied. Acts 19, 20, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And so I hope that you and I will be faithful during times of persecution to preach the word. And we also see, verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. This is not Philip the apostle. Just to make sure you understand, there is an apostle named Philip. But this is the Philip the deacon. We find his name first mentioned in Acts chapter 6, verse 5, as one of the seven men who were full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And while the apostles were tending to the church in Jerusalem, Philip was one of those who was the very first missionary, marked here in Scripture, that ventured north into Samaria. And while the text says that he went down to the city of Samaria, we understand that to be a reference to the variation of topography. 
simply meaning that Samaria was of a lower elevation than the city of Jerusalem. So he went north, but the text says he went down because it was traveling down in elevation. It was located about 40 miles north of Jerusalem. You would rightly remember that Samaria was the ancient capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. And after about 150 years of idolatry and rebellion against God, that city fell under the Assyrian invasion. And Samaria's downfall marked the end of the northern kingdom. And many of its people were resettled into other lands by the Assyrians. And unfortunately, when they were resettled into other lands, they began to lose their identity as God's covenant people. They began to remarry and intermarry with pagan and Gentile idolaters, which was forbidden in the Mosaic covenant. And the resulting mix of Jews and Gentile peoples together became known as the Samaritans. 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 33, records their religious compromise. It says, so they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. The sad story about Samaria is they never fully recovered. There was some pretty intense division between the Samaritans and the Jews on many things. Jews had a mindset of mercy, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, they, they fought like cats and dogs. They wouldn't travel through the country, as you remember, where Jesus was going to take a, a route uh, from Galilee to, to uh, Jerusalem, and he had, they thought he was going to go around. He decided to go right through. And so while they were fighting, Jesus had this mindset of, look, the Samaritans need to be evangelized. They're, they're not people that were to cast out as half-breeds, as they were thought about at that time. He, we, we need to reach out to these Samaritans. We need to love them. And that's what he demonstrated with the woman of the well of Samaria in John 4. That's why Jesus gave the Good Samaritan parable to say, look, these people that you guys think are awful people might be better than you if they're willing to help somebody. You need to be uh, getting out of your high religious towers and serve people. And so we understand here that Philip is going now to Samaria to spread the gospel, and Samaria was still to be off limits to the Orthodox Jew. And Philip is fulfilling, though, Christ's words in Acts 1.8. You will receive power, again, to, to take the gospel from Jerusalem to all Judea and Samaria. And when Philip showed uh, up in Samaria, notice what he did. Again, verse 5, he proclaimed to them the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. He's there to talk to them about Jesus. The word here for proclaimed is that word caruso. It also means to preach. It means to be a herald. It means to make a public declaration, which is why we can't really capitulate to our government's idea of you can worship Christ any way you want in your home and in your heart. We're to worship Christ on the public square, proclaiming his truth. We're to go tell it on the mountain, as the song says, right? So we're to pray, preach publicly and declare God's truth. And Stephen is a great model of a man who was compelled to proclaim Christ over all, and he died for it, right? But that's what he was doing, proclaiming Christ over all. And if you remember in the message that Jesus proclaimed to the woman at the well, there had been some debate and bickering about whether it was right to worship on this mountain or that mountain, but Jesus cut through all of that theological talk. And in John 4, 23 through 26, he says, look, the hour's coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming 
He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And this is what we're to be doing today. We are to be preaching Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. That's our message. We shouldn't get bogged down with endless debates over preferences and styles and culture, but we should be willing to die for the gospel. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 5 says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ as Lord. So what was the impact of Philip's ministry? Well, apparently, in addition to preaching the word and proclaiming Christ, Philip also was making an impact with the miracles that he was performing. In fact, look at verses 6 and 7, where your next blank says, signs and wonders garnering people's attention. Verses 6 and 7, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits carrying crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and who were many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So signs and wonders are also garnering people's attention. The crowds came together and paid attention to what it was that was being said by Philip as was typical in the early church. The preaching of the word of God was often accompanied by miracles. Miracles are not necessary for salvation and miracles should not be demanded, but miracles were a part of God's plan to show his authority over death and over demons and over disease. And the signs which Philip was performing authenticated him as a true messenger of God. Acts 2, 43, we read, and awe came upon every soul for many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And so the apostles always gave the credit to the Lord Jesus. They did what they did in Jesus' name. In fact, Peter said in Acts 4.30, while you stretch out your hand and heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now this power of God to do miracles through the apostles was also shared by a few of their close associates, including Stephen, the martyr, and Philip, the evangelist. In fact, Acts 6, 8 talks about Stephen was full of grace and power, and he was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Jesus had frequently encountered and healed demon-possessed individuals. His apostles and those who served them, like Stephen, and now we're looking at Philip, encountered the same opposition with the same results. Demon-indwelt people do exist in our own day but are not often seen in a Western culture as they may be in the midst of a third world country. Commentator John Phillips, not saying demons don't present themselves here. I'm just saying you hear more about it in a third world country than we often hear here. However, I want to read this quote from John Phillips, who has an interesting take when he writes this about these verses in his commentary. Quote, we cannot help but notice the prevalence of both demon possession and disease in those days. We cannot help but believe that both those afflictions are common in all ages. 
We easily enough diagnose bodily afflictions for what they are, but we tend to ignore the parallel affliction of the soul. We tend not to believe in demons anymore, and even if we give intellectual assent to their existence, we discount their activity. Then he writes this. Modern psychology has done more to turn our attention away from demon activity. We have so many other more plausible explanations today for abnormal behavior. We have phobias, psychoses, and syndromes. We find cases for our depressions and distortions in childhood experience in sex and in heredity. Much of what may be uh, where he, excuse me, he says, much of that may be true enough, but none of it gives credibility to what the Bible says about demon possession and oppression. We might be very much surprised if the truth were really told to discover that demons are as active in the 20th century as they were in the first. He's just saying, hey, look, there's a lot of demon activity going on. Maybe we don't see it like they do in the third world country because that's not our culture. We don't, we don't, they, we're just got more refined culture. And maybe demons are more expressed in sinful acts going on in psychological cases. Now, again, that's a whole big topic that I would love to spend more time on. But I'm just saying some of that surely has demonic influence, particularly when there's sin involved and there's cursing God involved. And you see some of that, particularly in a mental health hospital. And we're just saying instead of calling it all some type of genetic disease, could there not be incredible demonic activity? And then we get out of the mental health hospital and let's just talk about us. Let's talk about us for a moment. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion. And at any moment, at any day, we may be engaging in spiritual warfare. And we should be. We should be meditating on Ephesians 6:10 and following. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in, in, his, in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And so we're told in that passage to stand firm with the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and with our shoes shod with the gospel of peace and the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation. We're called to, to use the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and to be praying at all times that our enemy, uh, that we may defeat our enemy. And besides casting out demons, uh, Philip also was healing and helping those who were paralyzed and those who were lame. Such healings of serious physical ailment made the power of God more evident. So no wonder then that the people paid close attention to Philip's preaching. I, I want you to notice it does say first they paid attention to what he said, and then they paid attention to what he did. I kind of get the feeling that when he went out, he didn't put on a horse and pony show and then preach the gospel. He just went out and preached the gospel. And as he preached the gospel, stuff started happening out there as evil was responding to the truth that was being proclaimed. And of course, everybody was paying even more attention because there's exciting things happening and there's real change happening. And so we read in verse eight, your last blank, joy filled the city. Joy filled the city, so there was much joy in the city. I believe that this joy is coming primarily from the gospel and the Samaritans finally learning and hearing how it is that they could worship God in spirit and in truth. The truth of Jesus and the gospel had been clearly taught. And so in addition is the 
excitement of the signs that were being done, the demon-possessed people being set free, the paralyzed moving again, and the lame walking again, all of this would have also brought great joy into the area. In fact, later in chapter 8, we'll see how the Ethiopian eunuch gets saved, gets baptized, and then it says, when the the eunuch saw him no more, that was Philip who was carried away, he went on his way rejoicing. So the result of evangelism and preaching is oftentimes rejoicing. We understand that Jesus told us about the same joy on the night that he was crucified in John 16, 22. He says, so you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. So we see that in the midst of persecution goes the gospel being scattered and then the joy comes. And I think so many times we just kind of have it different in our mind. Let's, let's start with the joy, which you can, you can start in with joy, but you get what I'm saying. You be faithful. You do what God's called you to do. And in the end, it's always going to end in ultimate joy for the believer, right? So let me just ask you, has that joy filled your heart today? Can I tell you again the truth this morning is that joy comes from living your life on mission, And when you are pursuing Christ and loving Christ and sharing Christ with others, your joy will be made full. Before he was martyred, Jim Elliott wrote in his journal, quote, I seek not a long life, but a full one like you, Lord Jesus. What a wonderful prayer. We're not necessarily seeking a long life, but a full one. Jesus' life was not a long life, but a full one. Stephen's life was not a long life, but a full one. Philip's life, we don't know how long it was. Certainly, it was full. How long will your life be? None of us knows for sure, but I hope that you have a full life. And the only way to have a full life is to have a life of purpose, a life of meaning. And the only true purpose and meaning that exists on the planet is to know Christ and to worship him, and to glorify him. And as you do that, you'll be filled with the mission of the gospel. And as you're fulfilling your mission of spreading the gospel, you also will be filled with joy. Joy is attached directly to the good news of Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning and you don't know that Christ, after we sing our last song, we have a prayer room just on the other side of this wall. Some people would love to meet you in the back. We'd love to talk with you more about how to come to know this Jesus and how to walk closer with him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at this text, to be encouraged and challenged by the life of Philip obviously to review a little bit of one of the most famous martyrdoms of the modern uh, world about Jim Elliott and his colleagues in Ecuador. And I just pray that those examples today would cause us to just re-examine our own lives, to see the difficulty of persecution, and to see the joy of the end result when Christ continues to be exalted And when we are scattered and when we are spread abroad, that we would be faithful, like we read this morning about the early church, to both preach the word and to proclaim Christ. Give us that courage. We pray that you would fill us with that same joy, that we would be faithful ambassadors of you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.